0: WBZ Original. John, you do this to me every time right. you do a we just intro. Wa- we
1: just want to go through the headlines first. In the
0: teas. Oh. Okay, the Oops. okay. First.
1: That's a great intro. To- Let's try it again. <laughs> okay. Everybody on a holiday week, welcome into Studio BZ. I'm Paula Evans.
2: And I'm John Keller. Happy holiday, Paula. Good Happy to see holiday. you. holiday. Look Al- who's here. Alongside with us today, our WBZ colleague, reporter Louisa Moller. Hi, Hello, Louisa.
1: Oh, it's Louisa. such a pleasure
3: to be here. Thank you for having to me. Have to explain why Louisa's here. Don't steal
2: that? all the beer. That, some of that's from me. <laughs> oh,
3: I needed to get through this.
2: So, this week on Studio BZ, my conversation with one of the two Democrats who actually thinks they can beat Charlie Baker in the governor's race this fall. His name is Jay Gonzalez. We'll introduce you to him, uh, what he believes in, and what he's running on coming up.
1: Liam Martin and I did a really interesting talkback interview last week with Father Jim Martin, who you might know from his massive Twitter following, his appearances with Stephen Colbert, on the Pope's private comments to a gay man last week that made big headlines. So we'll talk to him about that.
2: Jonathan Case, our producer, has. Another one of his bizarre, unwelcome surprises for us. It's something to do with the Boston Calling Festival right. that happened and right next door already. at Harvard. I'm nervous, too. I think he's going to try to humiliate us as a couple of squares again, Paula. Sounds but we'll fantastic. get into that. All
1: right, we have that. And then Louisa is here because she is going to talk about a really interesting story
3: she's been working on in one line. The release of a pedophile well-known in the state and how we handle repeat sexual offenders. A guy who
2: may have committed over over a hundred uh, assaults. That's on what children. he's admitted to. All right. Amazing.
3: We'll get
1: into that. So uh,
2: we've got an interesting mix for you this week.
1: Yeah. What do you have to start off?
2: I sat down to talk at some length here with one of the two remaining Democratic candidates for governor. Mm-hmm. Believe it or not, there are Democrats running for governor <laughs> against Superman. Superman. With the sky-high approval yeah. ratings, Charlie Baker. We will vote on whether or not he should get a second term this fall. And Jay Gonzalez, who was Secretary of Administration and Finance, overseeing mm-hmm. the budget under Governor Deval Patrick at the end of the Patrick administration, uh, sat down to talk with us uh, about why he's running, about the issues he's running on, about why he's not daunted by Baker Sky high approval ratings. And we opened up with a question that I think a lot of voters have about Jay at this point, which is, who are you?
1: <laughs> this is Greater Boston, Cradle of American Democracy.
2: Jay Gonzalez, welcome to Studio B Z. Thank you for having me. Good to have you here. So <sighs> who are you?
4: I mean you're you're from Ohio, right? I'm originally from Ohio. Tell me about your parents and your and your childhood. So my mom is originally from Cleveland, went away on a foreign exchange program to Spain, came back nine months later, uh, married to my 19-year-old Spanish father and pregnant with me. So my dad's an immigrant from Spain. They didn't have much. Uh, my mom ended up becoming a public school teacher. My dad never went to college, didn't speak English when he came here, became a successful small businessman and a proud American citizen. What so kind that of really, business did he run? Sporting goods. And so it really shaped my experience growing up, seeing my parents come from nothing to, you know, making it happen, living the American dream, and really teaching me that if we set our sights high and work hard and support each other, that anything can happen. Whereabouts in Ohio was this? Uh, Right outside of Cleveland, Ohio. Mm -hmm. And what brought you here? Um, My ex wife who didn't like Cleveland, Ohio. We both knew Boston and liked Boston. We moved here 20 years ago, and it was one of the best life decisions we've made. And um, I love it here. And uh, I really um, think there's something special about Massachusetts and the people of Massachusetts. So you're one of the few transplants around here who didn't go to school here, No, I didn't go to school in Massachusetts. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So um, you moved here 20 years ago, and you say... You felt you would come to a special place. Why? What's so special about us?
4: Massachusetts just has this uh, this attitude, this belief, this cultural um, spirit of being able to overcome any challenge and being a leader. Uh, you know, we've led on all kinds of stuff stuff before I got here, like the suffragist movement and the first public school, to stuff that happened while I was here, like same sex uh, marriage becoming legal. And it's one of the things that I think is really neat about this state. And right now, I'm concerned we've got a governor that doesn't see the job that way or our role that way or appreciate that about us. He's not providing leadership at a time when we desperately need public leaders providing leadership. There are a lot of Republicans in this state who call Governor Baker a rhino,
2: a Republican in name only, at the recent Republican convention. Uh, there were a, a, enough angry Trump supporters, angry at Baker for uh, some of his resistance to initiatives by the Trump administration to get a far right-wing fringe candidate onto the ballot uh, to challenge him in September. Uh, Baker has opposed publicly, vocally, the Trump administration on the travel ban, on uh, the Obamacare repeal. Uh, and several other issues. Uh, there was a time not so long ago when, you know, Gus Bickford was in here, t- the chairman of the Democratic Party, talking about how we're going to hang Donald Trump around Charlie Baker's neck. Is that what you're going to try, to? And how do you defend that intellectually, given what I cited?
4: Charlie Baker's not Donald Trump. Uh, but just because Trump has lowered the bar so far doesn't mean the measure whether our governor's doing a good job should just be that he's nice and isn't crazy, right? I mean, And you mentioned the travel ban. He opposed the travel ban. You also need to look at the difference between what he says and what he does. He opposed Syrian refugees resettling right here in Massachusetts. He he is ordering state police to detain immigrants. On Obamacare, yes, he said that he opposed the repeal of Obamacare in Washington. Right here at home, he's proposed kicking 140,000 Hard working, single working mothers off of their health insurance. That's the Charlie Baker that we know right here at home, and it is not good enough. It is not good enough, and I will provide a very different type of leadership. Whether, you know, at the end of the day, he's a Republican, uh, but regardless of party, Affiliation, he's not providing leadership that is in our best interests and isn't consistent with our values and isn't consistent with that culture we were talking about before of Massachusetts being a leader. One last area I want to get into with you here. Uh, you're
2: a vocal supporter of the millionaires tax, which, pending a ruling from the SJC, may well be on the November ballot. That would raise uh, several hundred million, I believe. Two, about two billion. Two billion, excuse me, that's right. Yep. Two billion. Uh, by uh, increasing uh, uh, the tax on incomes of seven figures or higher by 4%. I've seen Democratic candidates for statewide office here falter in the past because they did not dispel the perception that if they were elected, they would be looking to tax anything that moves, and it would be sort of a bottomless pit. I've seen. I think that's been a major factor behind the string of Republican governors we've had here, interrupted only by Deval Patrick's two terms. Take your shot at persuading people who are wary of this that you're not that guy, or are you
4: that guy? You tell me. There are definitely limits to how much government can and should tax, and we need to be thoughtful about it. Um, having said that. How much will people put up with a transportation system that's one of the worst in the country? Or a public education system where more and more it is becoming clear, it is clear, that the state is falling down on its constitutional obligation to adequately fund our public schools, many of which are under stress and many of which across this entire state are laying teachers off. Uh, let alone the types of transformational investments we can make that would make a real difference in people's lives. Like making sure, this is a big priority of mine, every single family and child in the state has access to high quality child care and preschool, which right now most families can't afford because we're the most expensive state in the nation. So in my view, it is a question of what do we need to do before we start falling further and further behind? And in terms of the stuff that's going to really make a difference in people's lives that government should be helping with. So that's the argument I'm making. And people are going to have a very clear choice in this election. They've got a governor right now who just accepts the way the world as it is and says he's trying to manage it better, although he's doing a terrible job of managing government, uh, versus someone who believes we need to see the way the world should be and take us to that place. And yes, that that will require some additional tax revenue. I think the fairest, most meaningful approach is this millionaire's tax. Our tax structure in Massachusetts right now is regressive. Those who make the least pay the highest percentage of their income in taxes, and those who make the most pay the lowest percentage. That's wrong, in my view, and this will help uh, uh, remedy that to some extent on the very far extreme for those who are doing very, very well. 19,500 taxpayers in this state who earn over a million dollars a year would pay a little bit more, and that would result in meaningful new revenue we desperately need to make some of these investments that Charlie Baker's not being honest with people about and saying that we don't need additional revenue.
2: Well, look, you know the argument from pro-business groups like the Mass Taxpayers Foundation. We don't live on an island here. There are there's New Hampshire right across the border. There's plenty of states with a good quality of life and better weather uh, that would offer much lower tax rates for these millionaires to come uh, and start start up new businesses or expand their businesses there. Uh, Do you have any concern about risking killing the golden goose?
4: This has been looked at and uh, reports have been done that have shown that in other states that have raised their taxes even higher, that um, that flight. Out of the state didn't happen. Um, We still, even with this, what would be a nine percent income tax on income over a million dollars a year, would not be the highest among our some many of our competitor states. So I don't think we would see that that flight. And you know, at the end of the day, we we just went from best ranked uh, state in the country to eighth by U.S. News and World Report, and they gave two big reasons why. One is we have one of the worst transportation systems in the country and it's getting worse under Charlie Baker. And the other is our fiscal stability under Charlie Baker is a lot worse. When I was overseeing the state budget for Governor Patrick during much worse times. The Great Recession. We managed successfully through that. Figure out figured out ways to make important investments in public education infrastructure at record levels, and we got the highest bond ratings in state history. Charlie Baker is the first governor in thirty years to be downgraded by one of the rating agencies. We're getting our ranking is going down because he's being totally fiscally irresponsible, setting us up for a fiscal crisis, and not being honest with people about the revenue we need to make some of these investments we need to make and to support the services people depend on. And when when you ask businesses here, what are you really concerned about? They don't say the tax rate. They say, my people can't get to work. They can't afford a place to live. And businesses aren't going to want to be here anymore, and they aren't going to want to continue to invest here if we don't deal with some of these fundamental responsibilities of government that our economy depends on. And yes, they require money. And I'm proposing to do it in a way that's fair, that wouldn't hit lower income and middle income people, but ask those who are doing well to pay a little bit more. One last thing. There is a source of revenue, and not a huge one, but
2: certainly significant. Uh, that the state's been leaning on for some time, and it's called uh, legal gambling in the form of the lottery. Now we have these casinos, if they ever open, and now uh, sports betting is legal. Rhode Island, Connecticut, New York, they already have laws on the books ready to go to get up and running and grab that sports betting windfall. What would you pursue an aggressive strategy to allow that and cash in on it uh, if you're elected and you're in office next year?
4: No. I don't like... um, I'm very concerned about legalized gambling. Uh, Gambling addiction ruins people's lives. The revenue raised from it, from state government, from the lottery, and um, we'll see with expanded uh, gambling and casinos, comes from the lowest income people in this state. It's a regressive tax. And it's encouraging a behavior that's addictive and harmful. So, you know, I think our number one, clearly, the the lottery isn't going anywhere, and our uh, expanded legalized gambling, the casinos aren't going anywhere. I think our focus needs to be on making sure uh, it's all implemented in a way that mitigates those adverse consequences and uh, the public safety impacts, and the addiction uh, help that people need. And we shouldn't be rushing in to. A brand new expansion of legalized gambling uh, in Massachusetts. So I'm I am very reluctant to be moving forward with that right now. I was glad to see that Speaker DeLeo, a couple of days ago, said that the legislature wasn't going to be taking up it up this session.
2: Well, we taped this conversation last week as the Celtics were preparing to play the Cavaliers in Game Six, <laughs> and as a <laughs> Cleveland area boy. I have to ask you, be careful, think carefully about your answer here. Who were you rooting for, Celtics
4: or Cavs? John, I am running for governor of Massachusetts. I am a huge Celtics fan. Uh, and I'm, I'm a huge Red Sox fan and a huge Patriots fan and a Bruins fan. So I don't want there to be any lack of clarity about that. What about the Revs? Soccer fans vote Revs too. also. Do you want to know a funny story? The new head coach of the Revolution is one of my best friends growing up a guy named Brad Friedel from Cleveland Uh, he and I were both big soccer players as kids Um, one of us went on to become a professional soccer player played for the US Olympics team the US World Cup team one of the best goalkeepers in the world and one of us didn't quite get there (laughs) but Brad Friedel uh, the coach of the revolution is a friend of mine from home Jay Gonzalez, Democratic
2: candidate for governor. Thanks for your time. Good luck. Thank you, John.
1: Our city is truly the hub, the hub of the universe.
2: Louisa, you've been working on a story that is disturbing, both in its specifics and in its broader implications. Tell us a little bit about the basics of what you've been... Covering and then we'll go from there.
3: So basically a discussion has started in the state about how we deal with repeat sexual offenders and this was spawned by the um, Proposed release of a man by the name of Wayne Chapman So let me start by explaining who is Wayne Chapman. He's a 70 year old man in 1977 he was convicted of raping two boys in the Lawrence area He was sentenced to prison, served 27 years in prison, and then once he'd finished uh, serving his sentence, he was civilly committed to a place called the Massachusetts Treatment Center because prosecutors argued that he was still a sexually dangerous man. And
2: civil commitment is the way we keep someone locked up even after they've served their time out of fears that They'll reoffend as soon as they hit the streets.
3: There's usually a hearing to determine if the yeah. person is still sexually dangerous, and correct? he was yes, and he was repeatedly analyzed by what are called forensic examiners. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're basically just psychologists who specialize in this area. Now, even though he was only convicted of these two crimes involving these two boys, he has admitted to raping as many as 100 boys, and he was also at one time considered a prime suspect in the disappearance of a 10-year-old boy by the name of Andy Puglisi from Lawrence. He has never— been charged in that case. There's been
2: a whole documentary made about that case, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, I think I saw something about that.
1: And let's say right from the outset, because we discussed this earlier on, this is one of those issues where people are concerned that the media starts to engage in fear mongering, because you're talking about someone who is going to be let loose on society and and that this is what is being harped upon. But even the governor in this case, has said this really needs to be looked at. Correct? So I
3: should first explain why he's going to be released, right? So he served a sentence. He served his time. In society's eyes, in Massachusetts' eyes, he, he went to prison and he served his penalty. But as, you, as we've explained, he went to civil commitment because there were fears he was still dangerous. Two psychiatrists, I'm sorry, psychologists, analyzed him and said, he's a 70-year-old man, and, and we just don't think that he's capable of offending again. We don't think he's sexually dangerous so
1: anymore. They think age is a real true factor here in these cases. Yes. And so that's what they testified but, but, to. But is this also based
2: on... You know, uh, uh, records of his time in prison? Did he undergo
3: rehabilitation of any significance? So that's what these psychologists have access to. What what the public has not yet had access to, Well, what they had access to were his full records from the entire time that he's been incarcerated. And they may have even interviewed the man himself.
1: Okay. So what did this forensic analyst who you interview had, have to say?
3: So in cases like this, um... Where you have a repeat sexual offender. The state almost always tries to bring in these independent psychologists to analyze them to see if they're safe or not. And in this case, even though you have what appears to be an extreme case, I mean 100 potential victims, Mm. this uh, forensic examiner who is independent of the case who I interviewed basically said, you know – He's a 70-year-old man who, at least on the outset, outside, appears to be relatively weak, might need some type of medical care. Even if he has the desire to reoffend, he, he likely will not. And that's probably what these two forensic examiners who worked on the case found when they looked at him. But at
2: least some of the cops who worked on this case aren't buying that, are they?
3: No. I mean, I spoke with a gentleman who actually interviewed— uh, Chapman, for 22 hours, he said this is all he knew, that he had admitted to offending as early as an adolescent himself. I mean, seven years old is when he said he started having these desires. Though. He interviewed
2: him back when they were uh, working the Lawrence case? When they were working so the Lawrence So this is some case. years ago. Yes, in yeah. 1977. He hasn't re-interviewed him since. No. No. But and he doesn't buy the idea of rehab for someone like this.
3: He doesn't buy it. And understandably, the victims, uh, who we don't know who they are, ha- are been, have been outspoken through their attorney saying, we don't buy it either. And certainly, if he's admitted
1: to as many as 100 cases of this, you have citizens who are going to say, well, that just isn't worth the risk.
3: Yeah. Right? But, but you know what? It, it's... It sparks, I think, a really interesting argument in our, in Massachusetts or in society as a whole, which is that, A, can you ever really tell if someone who's a repeat sexual offender will offend again? Can you really know, even if they're analyzed by psychologists? And even if you can't know, is it our role as a society to keep them locked up, or do we have to say they serve their time, and now it's time for them to go back into society?
2: Well, you know— uh, In covering Beacon Hill over the last 150 years, as I have. I know I'm remarkably (laughs) young looking for my age, but uh, one thing you do pick up on is the power perennially of the defense attorney lobby Mm -hmm. in the Mm -hmm. legislature. Many members are defense attorneys uh, and they're very reluctant up on Beacon Hill. We have a track record when it comes to drunk driving laws, when it comes to domestic violence laws, of lagging behind many other states when it comes to cracking down, in part because of the power of this lobby. Any evidence of that lurking in the background of this story? Is there a, a political argument going on now about uh, in, in defense of the rights of convicted sex offenders?
3: I'm not sure if there has been a political argument. I think almost on the opposite side of the spectrum that politically it would be very difficult for the governor to say, no, he served his time and he should be released when you have a case this extreme. Frankly, um, what's sort of interesting about this case is that perhaps he should have been charged with more crimes Mm -hmm. and then his initial sentence would have been longer. Maybe that's where the system broke down as opposed to now. Mm -hmm. Because 30 uh, 30 years is a pretty significant amount of time for a sex crime. And then to have more than a decade of civil commitment on top of that, uh, that's a lot of time.
2: Well, maybe there's one thing everybody can agree on, which is that our systems, our criminal justice system, our political system, doesn't do a very good job of protecting children whether it's children who are in the custody of the state for whatever reason. Thankfully, they're relatively rare, but we do see continue to see these horrendous cases, you know, a kid taken away from a decent parent and given to a, a violent, abusive parent. Uh, and uh, we saw that uh, the Catholic Church couldn't slash wouldn't uh, do what it took to protect children from rapist priests.
1: And now this. And, and you think that's what people say to themselves when they look at these cases, right? When people rail against judges, when they see the 10th OUI on someone's record. If we can't protect children in the Commonwealth, what are we doing? You know, that that I think when your average person looks at news uh, and sees cases like this, they think, if we can't get ourselves together to protect children— then what are we doing here?
3: Well, let's take another interesting aspect of this case, which just came up at the end of last week, which is that an attorney for the victims uh, actually filed an emergency petition Mm -hmm. to say, we cannot release this man. And her primary reasoning was the victims were not properly notified. Now, you could see some cases falling through the cracks. You could see maybe not proper notification with a a one-time offender. If this guy, I mean the notoriety here right we've done we did stories all last week about him and the department of corrections can't say no, eh, we should probably notify the victims that this is going to happen that seems to be a major issue unbelievable
0: yeah.
3: i mean you would I mean, think that would be job a. one Right. Yeah. And I should I should just to be fair, I should say that they did notify the victims, but it was within the the period of time that they were supposed to no- notify. Them sure. That that wasn't correct.
2: Well, Louisa, you're a you're a pretty tough, hard boiled reporter, but you're also a new mom. Does this story make your flesh crawl?
3: Yeah. Yes, it does. Um, and it's just tough. I can't imagine what those victims are going through. I think there may be some more resolution if they could say, at least I had the chance to have my voice heard before this decision was made. Well,
2: they allow victim impact statements at trials, but in this process, they don't.
3: They do not allow them if the two forensic examiners agree with each other. Agree. So
1: they've agreed. Well, Louisa Moeller, WBZ reporter extraordinaire. Thanks for oh, thank joining you. us. It's
3: great to have you. <laughs> pleasure here. to be here. Really,
1: really interesting story.
5: Pope Francis has earned a reputation as a rather spontaneous pontiff, making off the cuff statements that can take the Catholic world by storm. His famous question, Who am I to judge, in reference to gay Catholics, has been followed up this week by a statement to a gay man. Here's that soundbite now.
1: He immediately said to me, Look, Juan Carlos, um, God loves you that way, God made you that way, the Pope loves you, and you. Uh, have to love yourself. Hmm. And joining us to talk about the Pope's comments this week is Father James Martin, a Jesuit priest, editor at America Magazine, and author of the new book, Building a Bridge, which is about improving the relationship between the church and the LGBT community. Father Jim, thanks for being with us.
6: My pleasure. Glad to be back.
1: Now, the Vatican says they will not comment on a private conversation that the Pope has had, Uh, but we understand that you've spoken with that young man. What's your reaction to this whole exchange?
6: Well, it's very moving. Uh, The Pope is saying something that pretty much every reputable psychologist and psychiatrist and biologist knows, which is that, uh, you know, people are born that way, you know, if they're gay or lesbian. Uh, He's also being very pastoral. Uh, The young man, Juan Cruz, was very happy about that meeting. Uh, And the pope is, once again, he's, he's being truthful and he's being pastoral, which are two good things for a pope to be.
5: Can you explain, Father Jim, the exact position of the church on this issue? For a long time, it felt as though the position was that being gay was a choice. And in that moment, it seemed that Pope Francis was saying, it's not that God made him that way does this actually change Catholic teaching
6: well part of it is that it's a private conversation he's really said nothing uh, on the record Uh, and people would say even if he said something on the record you know what would it mean in terms of its authority he'd have to issue some document or change the catechism but to your point uh, the catechism does not say anything about being gay being a sin it talks about homosexual acts and homosexual activity but there is nothing that says that uh, you know someone who's simply born that way is doing anything sinful so the Pope really is once again uh, being pastoral and He's he's talking about the best of Catholic teaching, which is that God loves you. That's the essential church teaching.
1: Mm. Let's talk about this Chilean young man, because we know you spoke with him. He was a victim of clergy sex abuse, is that right? And then he was talking to the Pope about his life. And um, what uh, was his reaction to the Pope, who clearly in person uh, is very compassionate and really has a connection with people?
6: Oh well this young man was really transformed uh he was as you said a victim of uh the uh, sex abuse in chile and as part of uh the pope's investigation he called over uh three of the victims and uh juan carlos spent 3 hours with the pope and uh, in the course of the conversation uh his sexuality came out and that's where the pope said this famous line about uh god made you that way. So it was very healing for him and he he really feels I can say this without breaking covenants kind of empowered now uh to really bring this message to to the world, which is what he's done through uh through these interviews.
5: For gay Catholics, they now have Pope Francis saying, "Who am I to judge?" That was such an important moment. Now they have Pope Francis saying, "God made you this way." Uh what do gay Catholics that you talk with make of this? Is this just words? Or is there an actual change in thinking that we are witnessing right now?
6: There's an actual change in the approach of the church. And, you know, this means a lot to LGBT people. Uh, who am I to judge was a big deal, and this is a big deal, too. Uh, you know, uh, Juan Carlos is being honest, and this is, in fact, what the Pope said. Uh, and so for people who have been told often by priests and sometimes even bishops uh, that, you know, you're sinful for being born this way, it's a real, uh, it's a real relief for them. And, and mm. people told me that they were very happy to hear it.
1: So it is an important moment. Speaking of bishops, uh, on another matter that's making headlines this week, the Pope uh, is reportedly to have said to bishops in private that they should vet applicants to the priesthood carefully and reject anyone who they might suspect is a homosexual. Uh, The quote that came out from Reuters and others is that if he said to them, if in doubt, better not let them enter. What does this tell you about his thinking? And what does this say to LGBT Catholics?
6: Well, for me, it's important to say that he's not barring uh, entrance into uh, religious orders or seminaries for all uh, gay men. Uh, You know, he's saying, be very careful. Uh, You know, but by the same token, when he was asked a couple years ago, you know, about gay priests, he said, who am I to judge? That original line was actually about gay priests. So. You know, frankly, you could make the same argument about straight seminarians. If there's any uh, doubt about, you know, whether or not they can live chastity or whether or not they're, you know, sexually or emotionally healthy, you know, mm. you could probably make the same statement. But again, uh, you know, these are things that are off the record, right? And it's it's not being right. reported. And so really, in in a sense, nothing has changed.
1: So, so you're clarifying that you believe the pope was talking about the fact that if uh, someone is applying to be a seminarian uh, and they say they're homosexual and indicate that they might not be able to remain celibate, celibate that that would be the issue that should be carefully vetted.
6: Yeah, although that's just speculation, you know, because I think you have to take this in line with uh, his earlier comment about who am I to judge. It's very very complicated. So, but I, I, you know, I don't think anything has changed in terms of how bishops are going to accept seminarians or uh, heads of religious orders are going to accept, uh, you know, uh, gay men, you know. It, It really is, can this man live celibately and can this man live kind of a healthy and integrated emotional life.
5: My understanding from Pope Benedict, who preceded Pope Francis, of course, was that the policy on hiring gay seminarians was that if they had uh, abstained from gay behavior for three years, that was the standard. Does that remain the standard? And if so, does that send mixed signals to the gay Catholic community about whether or not uh, they are not being
6: judged? Well, the standard is actually deep-seated homosexual tendencies, and I think the problem is, or you know, that that different bishops um, interpret that in different ways. Some bishops say deep-seated means that you can't live celibately, right? That you're you're unable to live uh, chastity. Some say that deep-seated uh, means that you know this is the most important part of your life, you know, that you're gay and this is what you're focused on. Some people say deep-seated means that you're gay, but and really, I've talked to different bishops and they interpret it in different ways, and religious orders do. So you know, like with a lot of Vatican documents it's up for the interpretation and how it is really uh, applied on the ground.
5: Father Jim, where do you see this going? If if you're a gay Catholic and you're watching all of this unfold, where is it going eventually?
6: Mm. Well that's a good question. I think what's happening now that we can say is the conversation is being opened up. Uh, I mean you have a pope uh, who has said who am I to judge, you have a pope who's used the word gay, you have a pope now who has said uh, you know, God made you this way. You also have uh, cardinals and archbishops and bishops who are very thoughtful and very open and very welcoming to LGBT people so I'm not sure what the end game is but I hope the end game is more welcome. Uh, mm. to be, uh, right now though we're seeing a conversation just being started.
1: When you were here and we were talking about your book Building a Bridge you talked about the number of of uh, older Catholics that you had encountered and families of gay Catholics and what they had to say to you. Uh, We didn't dwell as much on that. We were talking about your, um, uh, your ideas about how priests and bishops could reach out to people, but what would you say most people who have family members who are gay and want to be part of the Catholic Church, what's been their response to the way the Pope has talked about this issue?
6: Oh, great gratitude. Uh they're just relieved. Uh you know, you really can't underestimate what who am I to judge did for people. Uh and they see a pope who's trying to be pastoral and is trying to meet people where they are. Uh and who recognizes that while uh you know, we have church teaching uh you know that is that is pretty clear, uh we also need to make these people feel part of the church. They already are part of the church. So, there's been a great deal of gratitude and sometimes tears and hugs and uh, you know for people who have really felt on the margins and that includes as you said not just lgbt people but but their families especially their parents
5: have you sensed pushback at all from the conservative wing in the vatican the conservative cardinals
6: uh... yeah there has been not not necessarily in the vatican but there have been a lot of uh, catholic church leaders who have pushed back against this um, and uh, you know there was a cardinal the other day who said uh... homophobia simply doesn't exist so there's that kind of pushback Mm -hmm. as well Mm -hmm. uh... and i think what you see is you know, a lot of um, sort of opposition, even to the conversation starting, because I think the fear is if the conversation starts, then therefore church teaching has to change. But really, the conversation is just about trying to be compassionate and kind and welcoming mm-hmm. to these people who, you know, after all, already are part of the church. They're already Catholic. They're already baptized. So of
1: course, it I reminds me as a Catholic, Catholic of the way that uh, divorced Catholics were viewed at one mm. point. That people they felt they wouldn't wel- weren't welcome at mass. They felt ashamed, and their families wouldn't speak of it, and so change. Things and thinking do change. Um, Let's talk about something that was kind of fun and really culturally interesting, (laughs) I think, for people around the country and around the world to see. Uh, You were the advisor to Anna Wintour, the editor-in-chief of Vogue, uh, for the Met Gala. How did that all begin? Because the theme this year was Heavenly Bodies, How the Catholic Imagination Has Influenced Fashion. How did it all get started?
6: Well, they contacted me because they wanted to make sure that what uh, their exhibits uh, were going to show wasn't offensive in any way to Catholics, and uh, and then I put them in touch with some people in the Vatican, uh, Cardinal Ravasi, uh, who was the head of the Pontifical Council for Culture, uh, and sort of took it from there. So, and then as a result, I was invited to this big gala. But uh, I think we have to keep actually the gala, which was very kind of fun and lighthearted, uh, separate from the exhibit, which is quite serious and quite scholarly. I, mm. I was just there this morning again. Uh, looking at it. It's it's a wonderful show, and I think any Catholic would be fascinated to watch it.
5: So you were at the Met Ball.
6: Yes, I was. Oh,
1: please, please. Anna Wintour said he was best dressed. It's so funny because I wanted to
5: say (laughs) Anna Wintour named him best dressed. I could not think of her name. (laughs) Just save my (laughs) life. This is me me in the fashion world. Name best dressed right here, Father James Martin.
1: (laughs) We're so glad to have you with us once again. Thanks, Father Jim. Good to be with you. I'm happy to be your Catholic correspondent. (laughs) No, We love it. (laughs)
2: of those labor and textile factories their work in front of computer.
1: So I thought what Father Jim had to say was really interesting, John, because Louisa and I actually are both Boston College graduates, uh, a Jesuit university. Father Jim is a Jesuit and his take on the Pope, who is also a Jesuit, the first Pope ever, um, it is a
3: very Jesuitical analysis, don't you think, Louisa, about what's going on? Yeah. I mean I think at least when I was at Boston College, the Jesuits were the only ones who were open about <laughs> what they had experienced sexually or otherwise. Sure. Um, and openly spoke about whether they had experienced feelings of sexuality. I mean, can you imagine a priest talking about that openly? Right, at all. And John, I'm interested from a non-Catholic perspective,
1: you know, how you view this kind of difference in the way the church is talking about these issues. Well, you know, uh, it, it,
2: it's a welcome change or progression, institutions, whether they're religious or political, uh, always lag behind the public. I was just thinking the other day, it's been 34 years since two members of the Massachusetts congressional delegation, Barney Frank and Jerry Studs, were both outed as homosexuals. And when they were up for re-election the following year, uh, they they were easily reelected with strong yeah. support from older Catholics. That was 34 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So it's nice to see that others are coming to similar conclusions.
1: It's true. And I think it, Father Jim, in this book that he has out, which is called Building a Bridge to the LGBT Community— uh, can you ima- I mean, I can't imagine. I had uh, parents who were greatest generation Catholics, right? The fact that the Pope would be speaking to a gay man and acknowledge it. Is an enormous change when you think, you know, at the very end there, Father Jim and I mentioned, when I was a little girl, you know, your sort of mid-70s Catholic church, even around here, if someone was a divorced Catholic, you you just wouldn't really talk about it. This
3: is a big moment for a pope to have this conversation. Did Father Jim uh, speak at all about whether or not this conversation, even if it doesn't end in the change of doctrine, Mm. whether it'll happen publicly? At any he, point, he didn't mention that. You know, the Vatican
1: will not comment on a private conversation. And Father Jim had actually spoken to the man, as he indicated uh, coming out, he, to 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 verify that this had gone on. But I think what's really interesting is no one from the Vatican has denied it. Yeah. And when you saw the Pope on the plane saying about gay Catholics, you know, who am I to judge? I mean, you cannot begin to understand the enormity of that phrase here in the United States, I think uh, we think, well, of course, right? But around the world, in Latin American countries, Argentina, where he's from, uh, other countries in the third world, where culturally it is still verboten to acknowledge you have a gay family member, this is where American Catholics might think, oh, well, what's the big deal? But in those other parts of the Catholic world, uh, it's huge that he would say this.
0: All right, what's next? All right. Well, so uh, Boston Calling was this weekend. Mm-hmm. What you might not know about Boston Calling yeah. is that they also invited podcasts Ooh. to perform. And we were not invited.
1: Oh, well, that's great. Yeah
0: isn't it? Lucky
5: nice.
1: nice. We're right next door. Yeah, okay. <laughs> literally oh, across the street.
0: So, uh instead they invited a podcast called um, Pod Save America. Oh you yes. You heard of this? Yes, yeah. the former okay. Obama
1: staffers who are so, so, um
0: while they were here they took the opportunity to, you know, not be kind to our area. Oh, uh, let me how tell you, interesting. Uh, Was Tommy
1: Veter there and I'm not sure who right? speaking it's, in this yeah, clip,
0: yeah. but uh you yeah. you be the judge. Uh, just Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just like your reaction to this mm-hmm. it's a short little... Listen, mass <laughs> 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 Oh, get ready
4: <laughs> Yeah.
0: You dump some Dunkin' to the harba Harba? You bastard <laughs> Alright, I'm gonna try it again You dump some Dunkin' Donuts into the harbor 200 <laughs> years ago and you've been coasting on it ever since
6: I wrote that for him, he didn't want to <laughs>
0: And who can forget the time you saw a shirtless beefcake do a magazine photo spread, and we're so impressed that you chose him to replace Ted Kennedy. I welcome your hatred. John. Well, let me give me a moment
2: to compose myself from all really? the side-splitting laughter. I know. I mean, really, this Please. is a popular. This is a popular. Oh, podcast? Of America is
1: huge. Oh boy! Yes. Wow. It's hosted by. Obama speechwriter John Favreau, oh. a graduate of Holy Cross, I believe. Dan Pfeiffer, John Lovett, Tommy Feeder. Yeah. Um, you know, this falls under, don't you think, John, the always. Um they hate us because they ain't us. Right, absolutely. <laughs> Which Patriots fans know so Bitter, well.
2: Jealous Bitter, jealous losers.
1: So they all come to Boston for college and, it's and so university. And it's so easy
3: to say it on Harvard's property, you know uh, what yeah. I mean?
1: And they, uh, <laughs> they love the tired Massachusetts accent, and it's like right. people coming here calling it bean town. Like, they just don't get it at all.
2: Well, you know, you have to understand, these are Washington people, right? Yeah. Doing this, they yeah. live, I'm sure they live in Chase sure. or, or du, Dupont Circle, maybe if they're area. single. <laughs> and uh, uh, my my own son, actually, and daughter-in-law and granddaughter live in Washington D.C. Right, right now for work. Hopefully, that won't last too much longer. We can get them back up here to civilization <laughs> near, you,
1: near Grandpa. Yeah, congratulations, yeah. F.Y.I. Uh,
2: thank you very much. Yeah, <laughs> but. Um, So I spend a fair amount of time visiting them down in Washington. I've been down there for work and stuff over the years. And uh, it's a strangely personality-free place. I mean, they don't, first of all, they don't have a unique accent that you could make fun of. Because everyone's
1: everyone's from somewhere else.
2: Like the poor uh, attempt at a Boston accent that guy did. They don't really have characteristic cultural emblems like Dee Dee. Uh, that you would immediately associate with a region. And they certainly don't have winning sports teams. So like I say, they're just pathetic, bitter, jealous losers.
3: Yeah. But other
2: than that, I'm sure fine people.
3: (laughs) What did you think, Louisa? Yeah, I'm just this one big fat yawn.
1: I mean, yawn,
3: yawn, yawn. Harbor? That is played
1: out. I know. Really. Why didn't they say park your car in Harvard? And, John, were you
3: over at this thing?
0: Uh, it's too expensive. Busting calling. Yeah, yes, yeah. I, that's calling, what I thought. Yeah. The, the gales
2: of laughter from the crowd. I'm, I'm hoping that they were juiced on
0: something.
1: They're very, very popular among the 20-somethings. Really? I do know this, yes. And you'd yeah. think
3: you could make fun of someone who's in office right now.
0: I
2: would
3: think,
0: I,
1: right? yeah, no. you know. In, in
0: their defense, they did Later They did a ton on, of okay. that. I, yeah. I didn't have the stomach to listen to the whole show. This but was they, just. They spent a very long time doing very tired yes. Boston yes. material. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Scott Brown jokes are about as mm-hmm. tired as it very, gets. And yeah, we're not better.
1: That's, that's timely, Scott Brown jokes. Yeah, I that's mean, right yeah. on the money. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah. You get your finger on the pulse. Of the Zeitgeist of Boston, if you're still joking about Scott Brown. Yeah, and well, it was a good of, magazine cover. Well, those <laughs> of you who
2: went to Boston calling with even partial intent of listening to this podcast, I think you should demand a refund.
3: <laughs> hey, this was really fun having Louisa here. Guys, please this was
2: really fun. come back again soon. I'll
3: see you next week. Any <laughs> hot
2: stories you have, come on in here and bring them in. You got it. And uh, thank you to everyone who is listening. Again, we want you to please uh, uh, feel free to subscribe. You can do so off our website or anywhere where you download podcasts. And tell a friend. Mm-hmm. Tell multiple yeah. friends. Yeah.
1: people. I, I keep saying this. I love listening to podcasts, especially in my commute, when I'm walking the dog in the morning. I always run out of my favorite podcast by sort of the end of the week, like when I get to be Thursday, Friday. I mean, some are biweekly, but if you haven't listened yet, you know, if you know somebody who likes podcasts, tell them to put it in their queue and just try it out the next time they're looking for something new. And if
2: you want to know whether this week's podcast is of interest to you, uh, you can follow our Twitter feed at Studio BZ Pod at Studio BZ Pod who's writing that those tweets anyway
1: you <laughs> know it's a mystery i'm
0: looking at you case
1: it's a it's a 1170 mystery
0: yeah john, john you know i can't type that's it. <laughs> okay all
1: right well i'm um, and I don't um, even have um, a phone. and also, oh, let's ask Louisa. We we have one we've been using. We'll surprise you with it at the end, but we've been looking for like a tagline. <gasps> like a big finish for the end of the show. Oh my something god! That,
2: something that will stay in people's something minds. That people that, would. Like an ear an earworm right. that they'll walk around. Right. Like
1: Mark Marin's podcast, he always yells, Boomer lives at the end about one of his cats. It's like a running joke. Oh uh, my uh, word. I don't know that we could be that any witty, thoughts? but God, you think John about John doesn't it. have a tagline? Well, I feel we like you This is a it's okay, it's a throwback, throwback yeah. to the days of your on WBZ radio, really. But so think about it Louisa. All right. I'll and ponder. If Report you have any back. thoughts about a tagline, but in the meantime, we'll give you the one we've been using so far.
2: Thanks for joining us and we'll Z-Z-ing. be seeing you.
1: Aww. Get guys. <laughs> she's, 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 she's making kind of so a face. Oh, so cute. cute. We hate our <laughs> We really do. hate us because you hate us. <laughs> <laughs>